This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Susan Greylock Usum, a host of the New Books Psychology Channel, and today we'll be talking to Mary Jane Rust about her new book, Towards an Eco-Psychotherapy. Mary Jane Rust is an eco-psychologist, art therapist, and Jungian analyst. Her numerous publications include the timely book, Vital Signs, Psychological Responses to Ecological Crisis. She grew up by the sea and now lives and works overlooking ancient woodlands in North London. Welcome to New Books, Mary Jane. Thank you very much, Susan. It's um, very nice to be here with you. This is such a, a wonderful book. It's not just about um, the practice of eco-psychotherapy, but what's so wonderful, you also give a great history of eco-psychology, and you talk about new ideas that are emerging, and some of the controversies and shadows of eco-psychology. So hopefully we'll touch on all those, but first it would be great to know what led you to write this book now. Well, um, there's the long story and the short story. <laughs> um, the long story is that, um, in a way, coming into the field of eco-psychology, which I discovered in about the mid-1990s, brought together um, many of my interests that had been always around but had never been threaded together properly so it was a great great joy to me to discover the word eco-psychology which I think many people feel that oh my god this is this is me this is what I've always been wanting to see these these different threads of psychology ecology um, spirituality and politics I would say are probably the main threads for me included in that word eco-psychology um and so um it was very difficult to meet other colleagues with the same interests but um i did through a new organization that got set up at around that time and uh, myself and about nine other colleagues met together as a kind of a self-help eco-psychology group once a month for five years. Uh, Really, that was my eco-psychology training because there wasn't a a training at the time. And um, we experimented running workshops for each other before we went and offered them to others. As a group, we attended residentials with Joanna Macy when she came over and with John Seed, who came over from Australia. They were two very important mentors for me. And then gradually I got invited to give talks and to run workshops. And um, I met up with someone in the early 2000s who was an outdoor educator and we ran courses in the wilds of of Scotland. That was a really key key turning point really in my my practice. And then gradually... um, Uh, I started working with individual clients outdoors. Um, That was a a huge step after working for 30 years indoors. Um, And gradually I came to see how 
um, the the eco psychology world came more into my work as a psychotherapist it was very hard to see that to begin with because you're sort of trained in a very particular way of understanding human trauma within human relationships um, and and I've written lots of different pieces and then in fact this book I was I was um, asked to write by an organization called confer that was just setting up a new publishing company so the brief was 20,000 words. Um, what are the main themes? What's the history of the field? Um, what are the main ideas? What are the controversies? And what does it look like in practice? Um, so that's how come I, you know, the short story is I was invited to write the book and the long story is all of that stuff has been brewing for decades. <laughs> yeah, and I think that must have been the hard part of the book. It's to get everything so succinctly because it is a very compact and like very readable little book, but there's so much in there. That must've been the challenge for the, for you as a writer. It was very, very difficult. Um, I spent a year doing it um, and they gave me a few more words. So in fact, it's now 27,000 words, thankfully. <laughs> um, but I think I'm, I suppose I'm not someone who, I mean, I could be very long-winded, but I think um, I like I like the idea of trying to get things, complex ideas across in in a few words, because I think we're rather flooded with with texts and things to read these days, and it's quite nice to have a nugget of something, um, and then you can go off and research more if you want to. Exactly, I think that's what I found so appealing as I was reading it, because I thought originally the audience might be more of a practitioner. And as I read it, I started making a list of people I wanted to give the book to because so many people ask me like, what is eco psychology or what is eco, you know, what would therapy look like? And I think, oh, this answers it, but there's also all these little seeds that you could follow on your own. You know, there's, you, they're all there. You can take it and anyone could follow their own path. So has your, your sense of the audience, did it change during the book or were you always thinking of it being for a wider audience? Um, well, actually, no, really, I suppose as I was writing it, I really wanted to write something for the psychotherapy audience because I feel like in this country, at any rate, they don't really get it. Um, I think there's a sort of fantasy of people going off and having a nice time in nature, you know, that, that <laughs> because psychology is seen in a little bit of a sort of white middle class fluffy way and uh, not really getting where whereas psychotherapy really is about very difficult and complex work of relationships and most people don't really see how the two things come together um so i felt it was an important book to write uh this is not i, I also think that eco, the field of ecotherapy has become such a wide umbrella term the, the 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 complex and deep work of psychotherapy has sort of not has got lost in it and so I wanted to come back to well this is this is how I practice you know I work long term with individuals and it's often very difficult and deep and dark work um so what does that look like when you take it outdoors? Or, or what does that look like when you bring the threads of an ecological understanding into that work? That's right. That is what is so specifically unique about it, the psychotherapy piece. And I, maybe before we dive into those, it'd be worth just teasing apart these few threads to make sure there's a sense of what is eco-psychology and what is eco therapy and what is eco-psychotherapy yeah. so how would you how do you describe simply what eco-psychology is okay so eco-psychology is really bringing together um as the word suggests ecology and psychology and uh, a simple way that i often describe it is on the one hand it's how we can bring a psychological attitude or understanding to the shift that we're trying to make in the world you know we're kind of stuck like rabbits in headlights. We've got this huge crisis happening around us, but we're not responding to it with, you know, I mean, we just need to 
really get going with this and work much faster. So it's a psychological problem as much as a, a practical problem. And I think people tend to think of it as being the work of environmentalists and politicians, but it's not. It's the work of all of us. And it's a huge change that we've got to make. And of course, the practical changes are terribly important, but there's also a much deeper psychological shift that we have to make. Uh, and that can include all sorts of things from climate denial, climate psychology, to looking at the consciousness change that we're being called to make. Um, there's so much more I could say there, but anyway. That, uh, and then on the other hand, um, it's how those issues come into our internal worlds. How does all of that, how does the crisis impact on us personally? And in, in a way that's going more into the work of eco-therapy and eco-psychotherapy. And when did eco-psychotherapy start to begin as a practice? Well, um, it's... It's hard to say. I mean, ecotherapy has been around for a long time, even though it may not have been called that. Um, so we can trace it right back to, I don't know, um, the 19th century probably. And, or, or my, I mean, in a sense, it's always been going on. Of course, humans have always known that spending time um, in the lap of nature is deeply healing, but it's also challenging. You know, it's not just a nice thing. It's also about adventure. Um, it's also about risk. Um, there's all sorts of things, you know, going on there. And it's no accident that we would go off into the wilderness for a rite of passage. Um, young men in or young people, particularly young men, say, in southern Africa, being sent off for their rite of passage, about a third of them would not return. I mean, that's staggering. In terms of health and safety in our culture, that wouldn't be allowed to happen. <laughs> but in their culture, they would understand that this would be an important ritual um, in turning boys into men. I think that sometimes gets lost in people there might be a sense of ecotherapy being more of a feel-good um, method where you go and you around the beauty of nature and its healing, but not a sense of the, the full capacity of the, of the more-than-human world. And, of course, that whole notion of the sort of fluffy notion of ecotherapy sits within our very domesticated lifestyles and culture. <clears throat> so the very act of, or the very field of ecotherapy itself has become domesticated, just as the work of psychotherapy has in many ways become over-domesticated. So the word eco-psychotherapy, I think, um, I'm not sure when it first emerged, but it's fairly recent. It's definitely within the last decade. And I think it may have come out of this organization, Confer, that asked me to write this book. Um, the organization was set up probably in the early 2000s by a woman called Jane Ryan, and she was organizing conferences for psychotherapists. And it was a one-woman band for a very long time. Um, and she really got eco-psychology, which was fantastic. That meant that Confer as an organization started to put on eco-psychology conferences, maybe once or twice a year since I think the first one was in 2008. And then somewhere along the line, she came up with the word eco-psychotherapy or somebody, somebody in, in our community came up with that word. I don't quite know how it happened, but it's now it's being used quite a lot. And I thought long and hard actually about using it as um, for this book that I've written because I didn't, I didn't want to create another hierarchy and I think there's always a danger, you know, there's lots of hierarchies everywhere and that's true of the world of psychotherapy as well. And I, uh, so I didn't want eco-psychotherapy to be seen as better than eco-therapy, but rather as another form of, and that it's important that it's recognised as such and that it's different to 
I don't know, a kind of more of a coaching model of taking people out for a, for a walk and talk session in nature. Um, you know, there's yeah. lots and lots of different forms or animal assisted therapy or um, adventure therapy. I mean, there's, there's countless different forms of ecotherapy and ecopsychotherapy is, is another form. That's a good distinction you bring up when you were thinking about how to, the name, because I think in our consumer culture, possibly adding eco to something is like a, a value add and you're making it a little better than, and that's sort of a risk in the, in the terminology. I also want to say, I hate that prefix. It's added to everything all the time. I don't actually really like the term eco-psychology, nor do I like adding eco onto psychotherapy. But I think for the moment, that's what we're stuck with. And for the moment, it describes the field. People get it when, when you say the word or, the, or they'll be interested and they'll want to find their way in and try to understand. Mm -hmm. So maybe, um, maybe I could say a little bit about what, how I understand eco-psychotherapy. Um, so firstly... Um, in a sense, to differentiate it from regular psychotherapy. In regular psychotherapy, we're very used to understanding human trauma and human healing as coming out of human relationships. Eco-psychotherapy includes our relationship with the other-than-human world, with nature. I'm, I'm using the rather clunky word other-than-human world because I think when I say nature, it immediately creates a dualism between humans and nature, and we're part of nature. So, you know, we, many of us, I won't say all, because it's not true of everyone, but many of us form deep relationships with animals, with place, with trees, uh, with the elements, from, the, from year dot, really. I mean, we're all born into water, into the womb. <laughs> so we have a relationship with the non-human world of course we do from the moment we're conceived and it's very odd isn't it that it's been completely left out of how we think about ourselves psychologically um so i think eco-psychotherapy it doesn't have a theory yet but it needs to have a theory about child development and how important it is for children to play outdoors, what happens to them when they play outdoors. I'm sure there's tons of research about, about that and how helpful it is for children. But it's not just that, you know, it's about developing an empathy for animals when we grow up playing or living with animals. And so many people do have pets. Um, and those people know full well that animals, for example, feel pain or animals feel in much the same way as humans do. They just don't have the intellectual piece added on. This is an interesting point that I think Jerome Bernstein brought up in one of his books in particular, the distinction in psychotherapy where there's a tendency, especially in Jungian work, to for things to become symbolic in our relationship with animals or a dream to become and um, to become specific about it, it's a symbol of something not about the animal but I think there's a shift to thinking like no when you feel pain when you see animals and other animals in pain it's because you're actually responding to that pain we need to sit with that pain it's not a symbol of my own grief about something in my it, it actually is real and that I think it's a distinction in how you might approach especially a Jungian psychoanalysis yes very definitely um, so, and then eco-psychotherapy is also, it's not just about how we relate to the other than human, it's also about the fact that we're animals and how do we relate to ourselves as animals, that we're embodied. And this is something that psychotherapy has not been so good at. And I think that in a sense, um, there's still that we're still suffering from old perceptions of animals as aggressive animals as just biological beings without the psychological piece 
animals who don't feel in the same way as humans, uh, and so on. Um, and so I think there's still this image around of, of our, our animal sciences needing to be tamed, that they're wild and they're aggressive, they need to be domesticated. Um, and I think that actually, I think the tide is just beginning to turn with the whole movement of rewilding and people beginning to get the idea that actually maybe humans need rewilding too. <laughs> and this, and that wild does include being disinhibited and being um, aggressive, but of course humans are always, you know, it's not just our animal cells, we're, we're all like that anyway. When, when humans are threatened, we react aggressively in the same way that animals react aggressively when they're threatened. But, you know, that, that actually the wild contains so many gifts that I think we've lost as we become over-domesticated. So how that, that we are intuitive beings, that's part of our animal self. We are sensual beings and we are feeling beings. So I think psychotherapy has been great on bringing us back in touch with our feelings very important piece but not so great yet on embodiment and sensuality and um and actually intuition is in the balance i think it's still it's still people still very suspicious of intuition as, as being unreliable but in a sense no faculty none of those faculties are reliable on their own. This is what's so important, isn't it, that um, our culture highly prizes the rational and the intellect, but it must come together with those other faculties before we um, can create wisdom or find wisdom. And then, of course, the last piece, well, not the last piece, but eco-psychotherapy very much recognises the existence of the ecological crisis and acknowledges that many people will be suffering from eco-anxiety and eco-grief, eco-rage, eco-anything. There I am adding the prefix on to all these feelings again. Um, and, and offers a space in the therapy for clients to really explore um, the many different directions that, that those feelings might, might take them. Uh, rather than the, the the ghastly things that you hear sometimes about therapists interpreting those as displacement from human um, relationships. So, you know, someone who is terribly distressed about the felling of the tree in their childhood garden, who they, which they never grieved over, the therapist will try and make that into the loss of the father when the parents got divorced or something like that. Um, just making that up, but you know. Um, so, but in it, fact, it's very painful to chop down a very big tree that you've seen your whole life, and you know the web of life that revolves around that tree. And it may well um, have got entangled in the, uh, the loss of a father, but the two things are different. And it's absolutely, of course, we need to grieve our losses in the in the other than human world, of course we do. And actually for many people, um, losing a dog or a cat or a guinea pig will be their first experience of grief. So it's terribly important. And, it's, and that's often missed in therapy because we're not trained to recognize those events as being um, really traumatic. Um, I had that experience that actually I went through years. I mean, you know how it is when you train as a Jungian analyst or something like that. I mean, years and years and years of frequent therapy and no one picked up the dog who I lost when I was 13 and it was absolutely devastating, a devastating event because she drowned. She drowned in our garden. And uh, I just cut off. The grief was so overwhelming, I couldn't stand it. And it remained buried for years and years and years and actually left a trail of what now, I think, on reflection, a lot of uh, my bodily symptoms that I got after that event was due to unexpressed grief. And it wasn't until I came into the world of eco-psychology 
and started re-looking at my life story in terms of my relationship with land and the other than human world, that I came back to this and realized how it had just been missed out of, of all those hundreds of hours of therapy. <laughs> Terrible. You you give some really specific examples of technique, and I think having gone through this evolution yourself as a therapist, I think you'll understand that some psychotherapists will be very uncomfortable about breaking some of that, you know, the structure of the therapeutic process, like the the room itself. For instance, you bring this up in the book. The container of the room is such an important piece, and you sort of disrupt that possibly by going outside, and which is almost like a they're almost taboo, some of the things that you might bring up in ecotherapy. So can you say a little bit about that, to especially the therapists who are um, uncomfortable with some of those ideas on the technique? Well, certainly um, I can think of two uh, um, examples of, of what you're raising, and it's really important. You know, one is um, that we don't discuss politics in therapy. It's always interpreted and I think this is uh, the ecological stuff is seen in in the same light as we don't discuss politics. We don't discuss the ecological crisis. And actually, there's a union analyst, Andrew Samuels, who's done a lot of work on politics and psychotherapy, and he has always maintained that um, that this that there is a political self, just as a, that there is an ecological self, and that. Um, politics is something that can be discussed in the work of psychotherapy in, in, a, in the process of someone developing their political self, if you like. And I, I would I would agree with him there. Um, so that's a very that's a very uh, much discussed point of technique that many therapists will have different views on. But certainly, yes, taboo taking therapy outdoors. Um, and in the early days of when I was experimenting with it, I definitely had fears of being struck off, <laughs> discovered, seen in my local woods as if someone would know what I was doing. <laughs> and and that there might be a critique that you weren't keeping people safe, right? Because the room is, is a symbol of safety. And so that, that's a big move to make as a therapist. And yes, and, and people are right to be to ask questions about it because the first question that always arises is, but what about confidentiality? So it's not just about keeping physically safe. It's like, well, you know, I, I live in a big city. Um, I'm working with people in my local woodland, a public woodland. Um, is this is this safe? Is this safe from intruders? Would humans walk into the session? But also, would people overhear? Um, and obviously, you have to attend to those issues. And there may be times um, where it's not appropriate to work with someone outdoors. Um, particularly, I've found, for example, if someone is, is going through a long and extended period of talking about childhood sexual abuse, I don't think that public woodland is a good spot um, to work with my client in to discuss that matter. I personally wouldn't feel safe. And I feel sorry about that because I feel that actually the outdoors would be a very good space for that sort of person to want, you know, if, if that's what they want to do. But I think uh, a private garden uh, would be much better as long as you can't be overheard. So, um, so it, I tend to offer my first sessions with clients indoors and make an assessment of whether I, I think, you know, if they're wanting to work outdoors, and it's always the client's choice, um, I would make an assessment of whether I, I think this is a good idea. Um, and I also, you know, you can't uh, have loud emoting in the outdoors. Someone can't shout and scream or sob endlessly for the duration of the session so it, it's limiting in that respect um so those are the sorts of things that, that one has to think about um and it's not for everyone 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One interesting thing that I think when if you bring therapy outdoors, it might happen more. I'm curious of your experience of this is um, synchronicity. I've always wondered if when you're out, I mean, my own experience is there's more opportunity almost for these synchronistic things to happen. And I think in your book, you beautifully called synchronicity the um, grace offering. Can you say a little more about that role in psychotherapy and how you may see it differently or in in outdoor settings or in eco-psychotherapy in general? Well, I, th- I think you're right that it, there's more opportunity for it to happen outdoors. So uh, what I find is that, in a sense, you're opening the door of the, to, of the session to other beings to come in and join in with you in the session. Um, and that can happen very frequently, I find. It doesn't always happen. You know, um, I think I had a session the other day outdoors and the two of us were just sitting on a tree trunk and totally focused on what was being said. And to be honest, we might we would have had exactly the same dialogue indoors. But it was very nice being in the woods. Um, But it wasn't necessarily impacted. The session itself wasn't necessarily impacted by being outdoors. But other times um, with other people, um, all kinds of things might happen. I mean, I remember one time um, working with a client whose mother had died several months previously and she was in the thick of mourning. And she came to a point in the session and she turned to me and she just said, there is no new life. And in that moment, an acorn dropped from the tree above into her lap. So nature spoke. Uh, Nature said there is new life. Here's a seed for you. Now, it wouldn't have worked if I'd said something like that. And I'm, as a therapist, I don't do reassurance. You know, that's not my role. So when she says there is no new life, I'm simply a witness to her saying that. Or, you know, I might mirror back. That's a hard place to be in at the moment. I hear you. Something like that. But nature is saying, there is. (laughs) And she just burst out laughing. She just (laughs) got it immediately. So there's things like that. The the ways in which animals and trees and the wind... um, intervene i remember in another session someone who i can't remember exactly what she's talking about but she was in a very painful place and then the wind blew and she smelt roses on the wind i mean there were no roses anywhere near us but it was as if something blew through her and she her whole um perspective in that moment shifted in quite a deep way. It was a very beautiful moment. So, and it's hard, it's really hard for me to express in words how um, profound these moments are, but I I, I think it's, in a sense, uh, you know, that's why I sort of end up giving examples. But in a sense, I think it's an affirmation for for all of us about the interconnectedness of everything. I mean, just... uh, it's just extraordinary when it happens and, and the timing of it as well. It's just amazing. It's one of those things in eco-psychotherapy. It's hard in psychotherapy. It's hard to describe. You had to be there to understand how incredibly profound the smell of roses was. I think we get a sense of it, but, and so it, it's, you use a phrase, the ecological self. And to me, as I'm listening into you, I'm hearing, you know, that the setting and the form helps to cultivate through the process, this, ecological self. Can you say more about that and what that means? Well, I think the ecological self is the part of ourselves that 
knows that we are nature. I think it can go in lots of different directions. Uh, it's very hard to describe the ecological self. But Arnie Ness, who first, a Norwegian eco-philosopher who first coined the word ecological self, said that it was the part of ourselves that could identify with the other. I, I think it probably stretches out a lot more than that. Um, in a sense, um, um, sometimes there are, you can have a glimpse, you know, when you go out for a walk, or I let's use I, when I go out for a walk, I will have a moment, say I'm on the clifftops overlooking the sea, and I breathe in and I just have a moment of feeling that I'm this tiny speck, but I'm part of everything. And so the small I is aware of the small I, but I'm also expanded right out. And I'm, and I, so I think of that as my ecological self, that it goes beyond the boundaries of my skin. And a sense, so I think that's Arnie Ness, meaning that I can identify with the other, I can feel with, um, I don't know, the, 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 the bee that's trying to get out of my shut window and it's suffering. I can, I can feel with that animal. So there's something that of me that goes beyond my skin. And we can also think of it as going back in time, you know, to, to feel with our ancestors. We can think of it as something that goes forward, um, as many indigenous cultures talk about thinking seven generations. That's what we need to be doing now. We mustn't be doing anything that has a negative impact on seven, uh, seven generations ahead of us. So thinking sustainably. I mean, I think it's a much more exciting word than thinking sustainably. Thinking seven generations <laughs> is much more inspiring and imaginative, isn't it? To imagine all the generations going ahead of us. Well, this is a good prelude to talking more about the shadow side of, of eco-psychotherapy and eco-psychology. There's certainly troubling aspects that you bring up in the book really in a well, in a good way. Can you talk a little more about some of that? You've already talked about the trouble with language and um, dualistic thinking, but there's, can you say more about the shadow of eco-psychotherapy? Well, I'm, I'm sure it's got many shadows um, because everything has many shadows, I think. Um, but I'll pick out two. Um, one is to do with how we so easily get caught into the, into the ways of the dominant culture. So I think there is a tendency for uh, some ecotherapists to make their offering in a sense of going out into nature to get healed. So it becomes like another version of consuming nature. I will go into the forest to take what I want. I want the forest to make me better and then I will go home again. Um, it's vital that we don't get into that and we don't get into thinking that you know oh, let's go out into nature and see the pretty bluebells and just make everybody feel all right again actually we don't feel all right and we need to not feel all right because the world is very troubled and we need to be feeling with the world um, there's so many crises right now going on it's very hard it's very hard to feel with all of them isn't it um but we, in a sense, we need to stay with the trouble. So I've never seen psychotherapy as something just to make me feel better. It's actually something that is that helps me explore my troubles, to stay with the trouble. So I may end up feeling worse at the end of a session, but that's because it's got me more in touch with things, more in touch with my feelings that I need to be working through. So... Eco-psychotherapy, ecotherapy needs to have reciprocity at the heart of it. We need also to be thinking about what we give back. And for that reason, when I enter into the woods with a client, we make a threshold and I invite them or invite us together to ask permission to go into the forest. The forest is a community of beings. Do we just have the right to march in there and do our work and come out? I think it's better to stand at the threshold and ask permission to go in and just 
to hear what the woods say. And so far, I haven't been refused entry. <laughs> I've always had an enthusiastic response of yes, yes, please, you're, please come in. You're welcome. Um, and my clients have reported that too. But I have, I have been refused permission to sit in a particular spot, for example. Um, who knows what that was actually about? Um, maybe it wasn't a good spot for me in that moment. Um, anyway, that's a big piece. The other big piece, big piece of shadow in the world of eco-psychology and eco-psychotherapy is that it's been a very white middle class movement. And of course, naturally, you know, it's arisen within a white community feeling very unhappy with what they see to be going on and how disconnected we are from the natural world, how we see ourselves superior to nature. And this needs to change. So that's that's come out of white culture. Um, but where we sit now is that naturally um, many ecotherapists are seek go to indigenous cosmologies and indigenous practices to seek inspiration. Um, many people borrow those practices without permission. Um, many people offer those practices in their workshops and charge money for them. And this is really against the principles of indigenous peoples and they're very cross about it, <laughs> rightly so. I mean, cross is the understatement of the year. Um, it's it's really um, obscene, actually, that we should be taking these things uh, after what white culture has done to indigenous peoples over the years. So, um, so a lot of work needs to be done in our communities to change this around and I think one of the things that's happening which is inspiring is that many white people are now realizing that they need to look at their own ancestors for inspiration. Um, it's not quite the same because our ancestors, our indigenous ancestors are not living so we can't learn from a, from a, a culture which is alive and that's pretty huge, really. But I think we can we can piece things together. You know, I think we can listen to our own bodies and what they say when we go and spend time in the other than human world. Um, there are many, many stories that have been passed down through the generations, and the stories themselves are really good teachers. So there are there are many people involved in um, rejuvenating. Um, indigenous white culture. Um, if if we're allowed to use that word, I'm I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that white people can ever call themselves indigenous or should ever call themselves indigenous, because I think it's become a political word, um, and it and it's not you know being indigenous is not just about connecting to the land. It's about so many different complex issues. So I probably prefer to put that word down in for myself and just talk about how can we reconnect to the land and to the other than human world and learn from other people that are doing that already. So there is a recognition within eco-psychology around a lot of the practices that eco-psychology is looking for are core to indigenous cultures and there's a risk of appropriating them when that's not rec recognized or remembered that the rupture, this this field is situated in a, in a Western cultural context and correcting a Western rupture that hasn't actually occurred in indigenous cultures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think there's much more of a recognition in the States um, because I think the issue of... Um, stealing from native cultures is very alive there's a there's a living indigenous culture there to speak back when uh, you know when their voices are finally heard by white people 
but I, I hear a lot of those people saying, actually, this is not okay. And of course, we don't have that here. Um, but I think that the waves that are happening in the world of eco-psychology in the States are definitely rippling over here. Um, and so I think it's becoming much more of a live issue over here. Yeah. Something that you brought up a few times and that is worth noting, I think, is that um, eco-psychology in general is looking at changing a system. I mean, it, politics are a part of it because it it can't really exist in the current system. And so de by default, part of the work of eco-psychology is political and social and cultural. So it can't, it's always sort of in this different place. I totally agree. How can it not be political? Because how, how we see the other than human world has been shaped by our culture. How can that not be political? <laughs> there are so many shadow projections that we make onto the non-human world. And that is one of the pieces of psychological work that's so important for us to do at this time. I mean, you know, we're still arguing, sorry, I'm going to raise my voice here. We're still arguing in the UK as to whether animals are sentient beings. That is in process. And I mean, at least it is in process in the law, but there is a law just coming into being over here. And it's just, you know, it's having to go through the usual stages that new laws have to go through to be passed. But it is, it is unbelievable that we are still at that stage. And just that one example shows the kinds of projections that we have about the non-human world. How can we possibly think that they don't feel pain and that they're not sentient and the, and the terrible, terrible atrocities that go on um, because Western people have come to believe that um, animals can't feel pain. Ah, <sighs> so much work to do. <laughs> well, uh, how how do you suggest someone engage with the the, the ideas of eco psychotherapy, in particular, someone that might not have access to um, therapy or psych eco psychotherapy? What are some of the you bring up a few ideas, which I think are interesting, of just ways you could change your own thought process or um, approach. Do you have suggestions for that? Well, I think one of the most powerful things to do is to develop uh, a daily practice, um, which I have had for many years. So one of the things I love doing is swimming in um, outdoors. And I'm really lucky. I live in North London and um, about two or three miles from where I live is a place called Hampstead Heath. And on Hampstead Heath are um, three swimming ponds uh, that have been made by, it's actually, they're actually fed by a spring. Can you believe it? It's like four miles from central London. There is a spring which you can drink out of. Um, and that feeds um, a whole series of ponds that were actually created in the 19th century. They were a river and they've been made into ponds. Some of them are, are humans aren't allowed into, so they're just for wildlife. Uh, there's one for women, one for men, and then there's a mixed pond. And the women's pond is the most amazing sanctuary. So um, I can go, um, it's been a bit difficult because of COVID, um, so we have to now book sessions and it's time limited, but hopefully that will that will change uh, and go back to how it was. Um, uh, so it's a place you can just go and hang out um, it's quite a large pond. Um, you can swim with heron, with moorhen, with kingfisher. Uh, I've swum twice with snakes <laughs> swimming across the pond. So um, all of which is to say that actually if you go to the same place each day and you spend, say, an hour in that space, you really get to know it in all of the different seasons, um, and 
uh, different animals and birds that come and go, different plants in different seasons, and then of course being immersed in the water. And I find that not only healing, um, I generally tend to go after I've seen a series of clients in the morning, so it's a wonderful way to refresh myself if I feel a, a bit clogged up with other people's stuff, then I go into the water and the water will help me to discharge any emotion that I might be holding on to. Um, but other people, you know, will have a particular tree who they like to go and sit at the foot of, or they will have several different spots. You know, maybe you like to go and sit on a seat high above with a view when you're making a, a decision. It's interesting how getting perspective and having a view helps us to decide something. Um, or if we're feeling a bit down, then maybe we want to be find a more enclosed space in the forest. So there might be a range of different places, but I think to get to know a place um, and to sit and to just let your mind become empty and to notice the connections between what's going on outside and what's going on inside. And that can be a really beautiful practice. Uh, I did last winter, I was, um, I went to one of my spots, which was under a tree. Um, and um, I was, ha I was due to have a tooth out the next day. And I was a bit perturbed because also, my lovely woman dentist had referred me on to a male dentist in the same practice for whatever reason. And I was a bit anxious about having this um, unknown man take my tooth out. And um, so anyway, I went and sat at this spot by the tree. And within, I don't know, five minutes, a robin had come and was jumping around my feet. And of course, robins usually are, are quite, quite... Um, they like to come quite close to humans, but this was particularly close. Anyway, I sat there and I didn't move. And then the robin came and sat next to me on the bench. And then it went off and collected a few more grubs. And then it came back and sat next to me on the bench again. And then it jumped onto my knee. <laughs> I was absolutely amazed. And it did it. It did these rounds, you know, going off, collecting, coming back, sitting next to me, jumping onto my knee, jumping onto the other knee, and then doing it and and I realized at the end of it that my anxiety levels had just completely dissipated and that this relationship with this little feathered being had just calmed me down uh, ready for my tooth to be taken out <laughs> that's a great example you also talk in the book about knowing your own earth story, which I think is a, an important thing for us all to think about our personal story because we all have one and we don't think about it. We are more likely to project onto other people or beings or cultures. And I think I think we might forget that no matter where you grew up or what your background is, you have an, an earth story and so do your past generations in your family. Yes, it can be really, really potent to say get together with a friend or even create a small group to for you all to for everyone to exchange their earth stories um i mean if anyone is anxious about the ecological crisis um i really would suggest gathering together in small groups and how potent it is for how to have other people witness your anxiety your grief your rage about what is going on but it doesn't just have to be a place for bringing very difficult feelings. It can also be a place to, to share your relationship with the earth. And um, you can start by um, sharing your earth stories. And also, if you get into the practice of visiting a particular place each day, it's lovely to share those experiences too with other people. What do you see on the horizon for eco-psychology and eco-psychotherapy? Um, I think, judging by the last few years, I think there's been a huge um, uh, increase in interest in this field. Um, we set up a, an online eco-psychology community in 2000, about 2008 in this country, and 
there's still people joining in in hordes. Uh, if anyone's interested, it's www.ecopsychologyuk.ning.com. And although it's UK based, it's uh, it's open for anyone around the world to come and join. Um, so, um, what was your question? <laughs> what do you see on the horizon? So you see more more involvement. So I think that actually, what I would what I would love to see is the psychotherapy world getting more and more engaged with these issues. And I, I think there are signs that this is happening. There's another there's another group if if, if, if listeners are interested called the Climate Psychology Alliance. Um, that has a um, an email list, so it has a live discussion group. Um, but it also has a great website with all kinds of subgroups that you can come and join. And judging by those sorts of communities, um, more and more people are getting interested in these areas. As I think more and more people are waking up to how real the crisis is, and therefore um, more and more people are suffering from eco-grief and eco-anxiety, there's been a huge increase in um, interest in the media. So in the, in the last year or two, I have just had countless journalists getting in touch with me saying, please, can I interview you on eco-anxiety? So I think it is getting out there and I think the field will go from strength to strength. And I would love to see um, a more robust theory developing and a more robust discussion of some of the conflictual issues within the field, because that's how things grow, really. Um, right. And I think, actually, I think, the, I don't know if this is happening um, in the States or elsewhere, but certainly in the UK, what's been developing is, um, as well as more thinking in the field, a diverse range of practices have been developing. Um, so some leading people in the field over here are people like um, Nick Totten, who's written a book called Wild Therapy, which is excellent. Um, someone else called Ian Siddons Heggingworth has developed environmental arts therapies. Um, a woman called Caroline Brazier has developed a Buddhist ecotherapy. And someone called Martin Jordan has written about taking therapy outdoors. He's written a, a little handbook called Nature and Therapy, which is excellent for any therapist thinking of setting out in this field. So I, I think there will probably, we will see more and more people developing gestalt, ecotherapy, Jungian ecotherapy, and so on and so forth. Well, thank you so much for your time. We're, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, is there anything else you'd like to add or something that's exciting to you in your work right now that you're working on? Um, well, I think there's two things I would say that are, I think the thing that excites me the most at what's going on in the world is the rewilding movement. Um, there's been some fantastic developments in the UK. There's a, there's a huge estate of 3,500 acres just south of London called the NEP estate, um, and they started rewilding in the 1990s. It's quite a thing to turn over an estate that size that has always been farmed to um, rewilding. And, and of course, they've, they haven't just left the land to itself. They've done all sorts of things like introducing particular kinds of animals that come in and churn up the land and... Um, but uh, And there's a book called, by Isabella Tree called Wilding, if you're interested to read about that. But what's so fantastic is looking at the speed at which nature will heal herself if given the right conditions. And also the way in which this has come into the media. You know, so on one of our national news programs, Channel 4 News, you've got Jon Snow, who's really aware of these issues, saying, and the white stork has returned to the NEP estate. This is amazing. And <laughs> all these people are getting really excited about what's returning. And then that has inspired a whole raft of people 
rewilding their land. There's so many different projects now. So, and then I think from a psychological point of view, it's really interesting to think about how we rewild ourselves. What does that actually mean? Um, and I suppose this is what I've been trying to do in writing my book um, in developing the field of eco-psychotherapy. And the other piece that I'm working on, literally working on at the moment, is a chapter for a Jungian anthology on the shadow. And I've been asked to write the, the, the chapter on the ecological and the shadow. It's another interesting piece. That'll be a wonderful contribution to Jungian thought. I hope so. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for this great book. I'm Susan Greylock Usum, and this is the New Books Network, and we've been speaking with our guest Mary Jane Rust about her new book, Towards an Eco-Psychotherapy. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.